millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The core of it is we have switched as a society away from leaving everything about your health to your doctor and only reacting to it when you're unwell to actually owning our own data, owning our own position on our health. So you might be motivated by a long-term health goal, saying I'm, I'm healthy, I want to figure out how to be healthier. It might be that, you know, actually I want to improve my health and I feel like I need to lose some weight. And then sometimes it's just like literally self-discovery. People are just like, I want to know what makes me, me. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast. My name is Poppy Jamie, a recovering perfectionist and the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. Like the app, this show is about hitting pause and taking time to look after our mind and soul. In this series, I explore how we can make life better in 2020. How can we reduce stress, enjoy life, bounce back from setbacks and get in flow? My guests will be sharing their expert advice and I hope you join me on the journey. Our theme music is courtesy of Mindstream. Visit Mindstream.com to learn more about how their music and environments help you sleep, relax, focus and move. Or find their music on any streaming platform. Let's crack on with the show. Hello, and today's episode is all about DNA and genetics. I realised a few months ago that I knew very, very little about what actually is the basis of us, our genome. I'm excited to say I tracked down Andrew Steele, and he's one of the founding team from Circle DNA, a company that is democratizing DNA testing and finally making it accessible and, more importantly, more affordable. So first off, I must kind of preface this interview with I'm really sorry if some of my questions are desperately basic. 
I clearly should have paid way more attention in my biology class instead of trying to flirt with Rupert Martin. It was unsuccessful. <laughs> uh, so I should have just focused on just focused on the biology. Anyway, uh, let's kick off with uh, the first three questions. Um, what is your favourite quote at the moment? So I'm a big uh, love Ernest Hemingway as an author, and I've read like everything he's ever written, and a few other key authors as well. But for the purposes of this question, I think especially about what we're talking about today and also my other career which was a sports person historically the one quote as um i particularly find appropriate is this that there's nothing noble in being superior to a fellow man true nobility is being superior to your former self Ooh. it's a great self-improvement message there isn't there and and yes. and actually very appropriate to what i could have learned as a sports person is that you're competing against others actually you can't do anything about what they do you can't change how well they're going to perform you can't sabotage their race for example but you can actually just improve yourself and that's where you find that sort of purpose and the ability to thrive i guess in actually improving yourself as opposed to worrying about what others are doing gosh i love that i once got told be a racehorse with blinkers on yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, the, they're they're actually manifested in a physical concept for race horses, right? Yeah. So actually, so don't look at the other horses. They mm. physically can't look at the other horses, and it makes them run faster. Yeah. So that's like a lesson for a wider life uh, context, I would say. God, I love that. That's just what I needed to hear today. And <laughs> um, what is a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? You know, when you look back at sort of things you've done or things you perceive as sort of failing to do your successes or your perceived failures is that they always have something. They always have a silver lining. That kind of cliche is there. In my particular case, um, I retired from competitive sport in 2016. And when I looked back at my career, I was like, you know, what? I actually haven't got anything to show for this, really. You know, there's all sorts of near misses. I didn't quite win the medal at the Olympic Games. I came fourth and so on. And actually, in 2017, my fourth place finish at the Beijing Olympic Games got upgraded to third. <laughs> and I won an Olympic medal nine years after I ran the race. And suddenly it reframed like how I saw my career. And actually, suddenly I felt like, actually, you know, I'm so thankful for all the opportunities it gave me. And I'm actually thankful for not winning this Olympic medal at the time because it opened my mind to other avenues, other, other paths in life. And now I'm later on in that life, I feel so much better that I was able to not be trapped by just being like a little bit more successful at my sport so, that to me yeah. is quite mind-blowing because it's so true that idea of being trapped by success is something that not many people talk about and mm. it's so true it's so true so you know if you're especially when you if you when you're young if you get defined by being good at one thing mm. everyone else then engages in that journey and they say yeah you're this is what you do this is what you're good at you're good at art you're good at acting you're good at sport whatever, whatever that that factor is and that suddenly becomes tied to your identity and then if through external factors you can no longer pursue that then suddenly your entire identity is thrown into question. Who you are to everybody that knew you before is suddenly mm. thrown into question. And that's a challenge because, you know, if I'd been that little bit more successful during my career, I would have been stuck on just, this is what I do. I run round one lap of the track a little bit faster than most other people in the world. And then suddenly when you're 35 and you can't do that anymore, you're left in a position where how do I define myself? Who am I? I didn't open myself to any other paths or opportunities in life earlier on. And it's a trap. It's actually a trap. Yeah. It's a curse, actually, you know? It really is. And it's funny because, you know, um, having being an entrepreneur myself, and, and I find that with companies, and I definitely have become overly attached to the identity mm. the company 
that I created gave me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when the company is having its challenges, it's very easy to then internalize that and be like, oh my God. And so I very much relate to that message and it's a very powerful one to share. Yeah, good. Well, I'm, I'm glad we, we, we started <laughs> off on a strong, a strong note there, haven't we? <laughs> Lastly, how do you define happiness? Happiness, in my opinion, comes from control of one's own destiny. So whenever you're unable to take a particular set of actions that you wish to take or you feel unable to do so because of fears or external environment factors, then that's where unhappiness comes from. If you've ever got a load of decisions to make, you've ever got a load of questions, or should I do this? Or there's so many other factors to this. That makes you really unhappy. Once you've yeah. taken the decision, regardless of whether it turns out to be the right one eventually, you feel so much clearer, you feel so much better. So for me, I always feel a lot, lot happier if I'm just like, I'm taking action, I'm taking those decisions, and I'm not waiting for a, a bunch of other things that I can't control. So you have had a fascinating life because you've mentioned it a bit, but you were an Olympic athlete, um, a medal winner, and then you went into DNA and the founding team of one of the most exciting DNA companies in the world. How did that even happen from an Olympic athlete to entrepreneur? So I'm going to add an even even more interesting string to my bow from before the Olympic athletes. I was actually a um, a music producer, wow. <laughs> randomly. And the best bizarre anecdote I have for that is I produced the number one single in Botswana, <laughs> and, and, and I said 18 weeks at number one in the Botswana charts in 2003 <laughs> when I was 18 years old. So so before even the sport took off, I had a completely different sort of strands of my personality and then, then sport overtook that and, and so on. So You're like an onion. So there's just a, lots of different There's layers. a Botswan and rap career in the background. <laughs> <laughs> the, then there's the Olympic career. So and actually the, the 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 DNA story and the sports story really overlap quite well. So I did quite well at the Beijing Olympic Games. Just missed out on the medal at the time. Later on that became a medal. I, I then had four years to go until the London 2012 Olympic Games, like the biggest possible occasion you could ever hope for as an Olympic mm. athlete, the home Olympic Games. It was like everything about your life was so defined by the fact that this home Olympic Games was coming up. There was a quest, as always, to just always get that little bit faster. So at the time, um, in Beijing, I ran a time which is under 45 seconds, 44.94 seconds. It's quite an important benchmark. It's quite fast. And in order to win an individual medal in London, I would need to run about half a second quicker. So, like, to put that into real life, it's literally that much time. <laughs> it's, like, stupidly small margins, but it's quite a big gap in that event. And there's generally, um, if any of your listeners have ever had the misfortune of running a 400 metres, it's quite difficult. <laughs> so it's a, very, it's a sprint, but it's a very long sprint. And uh, you can train sort of one of two ways for that. You can either train like a sprinter who does a bit of endurance or train like an endurance athlete who does a bit of sprint. Sort of come at it from one end, one end or the other. And generally speaking at the top level, everybody does it from that sprint method. They're all sprinters first and then a bit of endurance on top of that. But up to Beijing, I, I, I trained completely the opposite. The old-fashioned way. I had an old-school Mancunian coach where I'm from who just smoked 40 cigarettes a day and make us run. And we'd, oh, we'll go on with some more mileage on the Mersey, lads. We'll get, you know, so we, we'd run and run and run. And, uh, and it worked quite well for me. I made the semi-final in the individual event and eventually uh, indirectly won this medal in the relay. How did that happen? So the Russian team who finished ahead of us nine years later were retrospectively disqualified for a doping infringement when they retested their samples. 
So in 2017, uh, I was in New York in Central Park and I read a tweet press release from the AOC that the Russian team had been banned and the British team had finished fourth and be upgraded to bronze. So I won my Olympic medal. I got told about my Olympic medal through Twitter <laughs> while I was stood, sat on the grass in, in Central Park. And um, and then they actually gave us the medal in the London Olympic Stadium as well. So it's actually better this way. I yeah. prefer it this way. So it was really good. But anyway, so I, I, I was planning for London in 2012 and I got some pressure put on me to change to the more average way. And this is a message we can sort of think about in general life, right? Yeah. Sort of, what's the considered correct way at the time? My friend lost weight, they did it this way, or mm. everyone I see on Instagram does this now, etc. And even at the top level of sport, that was happening. Everyone else does it this way, so you should do it that way. Mm. And actually, I switched to this sprint method, and over the next four years, my career just like tanked. I went downhill, went from number one in the UK to number seven in the UK. And they only take the top six to London 2012. So I actually missed out on the home Olympic Games as a result, largely to this training change to the more average correct manner. Um, and at that time, after mourning the loss of not making it to the home Olympic Games, I was searching around for some answers. And one of a serendipitous turn of events was that I got sent a swab from Avi, who's our CEO and founder, and he was just looking for feedback at the very start of this business to say oh, you know any sports people want to test this tell me what they think of it etc and the results spoke so personally to my experience i was like wow okay well done you know what what do you mean the so results spoke so to let me tell experience? you so there's a uh, without going too hard on the genetic sort of science we're end gonna of things, go in we're gonna right, okay, go hard, so yeah there's a gene called actn3 yeah and with this gene you can have one of three versions of the gene you can have the cc version the CT version or the TT version. So two copies of the C, two copies of the T or one of each, depending on what you inherit from your mom and dad. And the C version is heavily overrepresented in elite sprint athletes. So much so it's often called like the Olympic sprint gene. So oh, 99% wow. of Olympic level sprinters have the C version of this gene, partly because it's really good at building sprinters muscle fiber if you give it sprint activity, right? Mm -hmm. So you do some sprint training, you get that muscle fiber that you want. And I am in the 1%. I don't have that gene. I'm the absolute anomaly <laughs> of Olympic sprints. And I'm an Olympic medalist, right? I'm really good at sprinting. Wow. <laughs> so so I, I actually was in this absolute anomaly um, of Olympic level sprinters. So probably part of the reason why the average advice was less effective for me was that I'm really not the average when it comes to that genetic profile of people that are doing the same as me. So shows that actually your your, your DNA is not your destiny. It's not your... Um, where you can or can't be or what you will or won't be but it might change your route to that destiny it might change your route to that goal and my route to that goal was the lesser traveled route when compared to most olympic sprinters and i was just really and there was a few other factors around my injury risk that matched my experience my nutrition response that matched my experience and i just thought well i wrote an email to uh avi at the time and i was like by the way this is my experience this is what you told me well done I'd love to know if I can help at some point in the future. And we got on really well, and that's when the company really started to, to grow from that point about seven years ago, now in 2013. So there you go. <laughs> it was a that's bizarre dovetailing of, of two worlds, really, at the time. Yeah. So serendipitous. Yeah. Well, they say there's no such thing as coincidences. They're coordinated incidences, and this is an example that feels very in line with that. Mm. Um, so, okay, let's go to the basics of DNA like how many do we have what do they determine and again apologies if this sounds basic but 
it's nice to have a reminder. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, I guess it, it gets used like quite a lot very broadly, right? It's in my DNA or it's, um, you know, it's, it's who I am, etc. And there's largely just a, you know, um, there's a certain genetic code which all living things have. Uh, humans have a particular selection of, of these genes, about 23,000 genes in total. Um, but what we're really looking at and what we care about in, in sort of the space we're in now with Circle DNA and our other uh, products, DNA Fit, um, are actually looking at specific um, locations or mutations or changes in those genes on an individual level. So there's about 600 million locations one could look at mm. in a human's uh, genome. That's the whole whole genome. Um, and then the next level down from that is looking at every part of that genome which is active, which has a, a protein that it expresses. It's called the coding part of the genome, and that's called the whole exome. Mm. And that's what we test with Circle DNA. So we, we literally sequence the entire um, profile, the entire every single letter, basically, in what's called the protein coding part of the human genome um, and you know depending on what you want to find out so if you wanted to find out if you were lactose tolerant or not you might just need to look at one very specific location a specific mutation or what's called a polymorphism on a very narrow address should we say a very really specific point on a map um, whereas if you wanted to learn something that might be more complex like a, a predisposition to a medical condition or cancer you want to look at a much broader, you want to sequence the whole entire sequence of letters in a particular gene to find if anything was sort of away from the norm or a mutation there. So depending on what you want to find out, you want to look at like very specific things or you want to look at a much broader spectrum. And where we get to with the best out there, the best technology out there with Circle DNA, for example, is we look at um, as much as we possibly can. And for the first time, you can actually sort of get this, I guess, at a sort of achievable level from an end user perspective, as opposed to being a billionaire who can contact a totally. specialist. Because this yeah. is what interests me, because when I started to look into this, I was like, oh, this is so expensive to actually get your DNA tested. And then when I found you guys and I actually did one of your tests... I just was shocked at kind of how, I suppose, easy it was because mm. you, I mean, I ordered a pack to come and it was a cheek swab and I was a bit like, okay, sure, how how accurate are they really going to be able to tell me about myself from a cheek swab? Mm -hmm. How does that even happen? I don't even know how yeah. they can <laughs> yeah. give me that many results from a cheek swab. So it's, um, it's funny because when we think of like, I guess, medical tests, historically we think of going to a doctor and going through a sort of unpleasant experience and then maybe getting a needle put in your arm and some blood taken and, and actually for your dna you know your dna is very it's um it's static right you have uh, you have your dna that you're born with and that remains the same all your life no matter what you do until your last cell has decayed away into the earth right? it's the same profile so actually you're able to extract this information just from cheek cells effectively so a swab simply a cotton bud on the end of a stick basically that you rub on the inside of your cheek and then um, that remains really stable. You can just put it in a tube, send it at room temperature. It doesn't require anything special. There's no pain. And from that, you're actually able to um, to extract all this information. And it's a very complex laboratory process that's way above my pay grade. But it's um, so. How much, for example, that would that used to have cost? Ah, and yeah. and who would be able to, like, in the past, actually get their DNA read? So the astonishing drop in cost of the laboratory technology is actually amazing. So the test we do today, so called DNA, the whole exome sequencing. If you were to do that exact test 
maybe only 15 years ago, 2005, would probably have costed you north of a million dollars per person. Jesus. <laughs> wow. And, and probably more, actually. So this was this was once sort of bandied around in the media as like, oh, billionaires are getting this done. You know, like yeah. and they're, they're going to these specialist clinics. And, and nowadays... You can do it for a few hundred pounds, so it's that's like amazing. it's astonishing, really, and and that's just because the laboratory technology just went on this incredible um, improvement curve and just got so much cheaper. So like, it's actually amazing sometimes to hold the box in your hand that you're actually just shipping out, buying on the website, whatever, and think this could have been a million dollars worth of testing historically. So, that's insane. Yeah. So I mean, I did it. Um, I got tested. To be honest, for for no particular reason. I just um passionate about learning more about health but why do you think most people get their dna tested what are you finding kind of from your consumers so there's a broad range right but actually at the core of it is we have switched as a society away from leaving everything about your health to your doctor and only reacting to it when you're unwell to actually owning our own data owning our own position on our health so if you think about it historically um, talking about sort of other technologies to put it in context, you could always buy a pedometer, right? Which had you could put on your belt, you buy it from the, the right. pharmacy, right? And it'd show an LED screen of like 10,000. Yeah. <laughs> no one cared, no one bought that. And yeah. then suddenly, you know, wearable technology companies like Fitbit, etc., made this, you know, a desirable engagement tool, how yeah. to gamify that. And actually, society with mobile technology has sort of met these two trends that suddenly we care about our own health data even when we're well, even yeah. when we're healthy. And actually, we can interact with that and we want to interact with that and engage with it through our own device without necessarily our doctor holding that under lock and key. And so those two trends have sort of come around and actually where this sort of self-discovery sits with your own DNA might be motivated by a long-term health goal, saying, I'm, I'm healthy, I want to figure out how to be healthier and I want to mm. live for a long time. It might be that, you know, actually I want to improve my health and I feel like I need to lose some weight or I need to be have a bit of a healthier lifestyle because I had a family history of heart disease or something like that. And then sometimes it's just like literally self-discovery. People are just like, I want to know what makes me me and I want to understand that part of me. Yeah. And that's it. You know, so it's a very broad range. Yeah. So when I got my data, um, I thought it was really interesting the things that I cared about and cared less about. Obviously, I'm not really planning to have children soon, but looking at um, the family planning section, so it basically tells you if you're a positive carrier. And so I found out that I'm a positive carrier of fructose intolerance, which is, okay, super weird, which kind of, when I was reading about it, m means that my children could be allergic to fruit. Yeah. But I'm like, that's really interesting to know because if I have a child who's coming out on hives or is really suffering i now have this information that i can then pass on to the doctor knowing that i'm a positive carrier in this fructose intolerance so that i thought was really cool to know well there's so many things right that you just wouldn't consider maybe in normal life and um you know there are these uh, what they're called carrier status reports right so you can actually look at do you carry a particular mutation that could be passed down or you may have inherited yourself and they they're very wide ranging. They can go from really, really serious things that might have a, a genuine sort of health impact um, if they were to manifest to things like fructose intolerance, which which could be actually just something to keep an eye on, figure out how to manage that in a in the environment that you can control. And that's right. really the key with all of this. It's saying, well, you, like I said before, your DNA is not really your destiny. Uh, it's actually yeah. just another piece of information that you can use. So the way I always frame it is we say, well, 
as human beings our experience uh, as you know through our lives it's everything is built on this interaction between our, our nature how we're born and our environment or our nurture where we live what we do the air we breathe the food we eat and actually we're just looking at that interaction between the two so if we shine a light more on the static part and that nature part of the equation can we better personalize and manage everything else that we can change so could that be avoiding a certain food type for example and if you know that data are you better place to one engage in that healthy behavior that change uh, but also to be aware of any potential pitfalls if you're just following the average advice okay so many questions um <laughs> first one um i knew we were going to get to this and this is kind of my fascination nature nurture i love that you've said dna is not destiny because um i'm in the thought belief that we can change so much about ourselves what is the breakdown between how much genetics affect your life and how much you affect your life so there's there's no one ratio across all of life <laughs> so it's right. very complex depending on the trait um there'll be a different amount of what we call heritability so how much of it is down to our genetics how much is it down to something else uh, non-genetic factors so if we talked about something like height we kind of know that's largely inherited right? right but it's not entirely so you know if you happen to have certain malnutrition when you're young that'll mm. probably affect your growth um if you did certain sports so even like doing gymnastics as a young person can affect your sort of growth actually as well so there's there's always both and depending on the trait it's either a little bit more genetic or a little bit less so something like um obesity is actually related to actually your sort of um, eating behaviors and how you're brain interacts with with food wow. and your choices around food and that is estimated somewhere sort of around 50 percent in general it's maybe genetic. maybe maybe a, maybe a little bit more so actually there might be a slight majority of that which is your behavior around food is um really guided by your dna and then you know but also the good news with that is if it is 50 percent, there's also half of that which you can mm. entirely control and that's a, a choice your environment so it's largely there's never really bad news almost there's just news that you can then hopefully take some control and do something about when it comes to that. Yeah, so for example, I found out that I was celiac, which I thought was fascinating because I a lot of people have said, how did you not know that before? And I used to, I'm sorry if there's too much information for people, <laughs> but I had, you know, I'd always be bloated and I would always think about so many different reasons. I'm like, oh, maybe it's because I'm stressed or maybe because it's because of this. And so actually when I found the actually my data it was really reassuring because it was like oh that makes sense mm. and so now i could obviously just make the precautions of not eating gluten so there's like there's so much good healthy advice right you can't as a human you can't possibly follow every piece of good no, advice. It, that's what i mean yeah, it's yeah. overwhelming right it's now so I think much, the industry is. we all know that we should eat like loads of dark green leafy vegetables maybe the bright colored other fruits and vegetables we should eat maybe a little bit of protein from healthy sources lots of the, and it goes on and on right you know make sure you've got omega-3 vitamin e all these all these sort of piece of advice and if we could all follow that, that would be great. But we've had good advice for a very long time. Agreed. And nobody can stick to it. <laughs> so how do we better focus and pick our battles? So in your case, there's a group of genes called the HLA genes, and they can raise your predisposition to being celiac, which is the medical condition of gluten intolerance. And if you, you know, perhaps don't have a reason to look at that or perhaps test yourself, uh, get a blood test to, to verify that or not, 
You might not realise you're celiac until later in life, and that's when, if you don't know you're celiac and you continue to eat gluten, that's when it can be harmful, because you can have a sort of malnutrition from not absorbing the nutrients from your food and um, becomes an autoimmune um, condition. So there's actually a, my father's celiac, for example, and he didn't find out till he was well into his 60s. Wow. And so by that point, there'd already been a, a little bit of damage done, actually, you know? So cutting out gluten, you know, if you are celiac is important, um, if you're not celiac, it, it doesn't matter. Have the croissant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have the croissant. I know, and this, again, I think is, this is, I think, why I've, I've become just really interested in, in DNA genetics because it is becoming a bit overwhelming trying to follow all this health guidance when you realise that half of it may be completely irrelevant for you. Yeah, and, and, and also just like, you know, how do you how do you stick or adhere to something when... It's just a, a single blanket piece of advice that's yeah. given everywhere. That that hasn't been effective. And you know, one caveat is that DNA is only part, only one part of the picture, right? You know, it's mm. important to be conservative with this, but at the same time, there's great evidence to show that if you know this stuff, we can increase behaviour change. So, you know, for example, even if there's something which hasn't directly got a proven link that living healthier reduces the risk, mm-hmm. people appear to change their healthy change their lifestyles to healthier lifestyles once they learn their risk even if it's not been directly correlated there's a positive there's a way that can affect a certain condition so it's very it's very powerful stuff to say well okay we should all eat broccoli because it's good for us but no one will stick to that if you say well you poppy need to eat more broccoli than the next person because it contains an enzyme which you don't create from a certain gene because of the way you've made then it's suddenly it's like, okay, well, I need more broccoli. I understand the mm. why behind that. I agree. Um, is there any research behind kind of knowing more creates behavior change? Yeah, so there's really some really interesting published research around like one, creating that behavior change in the first place, but also sticking to it. So we just recently um, completed a two-year study looking at adherence to dietary advice when accompanied by genetic data. And the fascinating thing is even if um, in the short term both people who had the genetic advice and those that didn't could stick to something they could see the health gains in the first three months they could reduce their fasting glucose levels they could change their ldl cholesterol ratios etc but over two years those that stuck to that were those that had that sort of personalized reason to stick to that yeah so actually there's even if you give the same advice so if i told you to eat less fat because you had a particular you know genetic predisposition to needing less than the average Mm -hmm. And I just told someone else, eat less fat because it's good for you in general. The chances of you sticking to that piece of advice is much higher if you've got... How much higher? So I don't know the the, yeah. the ratio, but we had over, I think, over threefold improvement in those... Uh, sticking in the, to the, health yeah, goals. In, in these sticking these over the, over the two years, exactly. So wow. it's, um, it's a very, it's a powerful tool. It's not everything. It's just yeah. another powerful tool. Yeah. yeah. And, just and another tool the, in the that's toolbox. The, that's the key. And, and we've just been blind to it historically because it was so expensive to yeah. do the technology. Suddenly it's available. You can add this to the arsenal, basically. So what are the problems with DNA testing? For example, I mean, I'm sure the one thing I did think about was data protection. Like, what do you do then with my data? Mm, so that's a big, um, it's a big, it's a big worry for, for people, I think, you know, especially since sort of like the Facebook Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. You know, there's um, people have really, I guess, like wised up to the fact that, you know, actually data is a, is a thing and I need to, I need to control this. I need to own it. And nothing feels more personal, more worth, more worthy than your DNA data. Right. right. So the um, the best way to to look at it is say, well, if you're going to do one of these tests, whether it's us or elsewhere, 
what can I see about how they treat this data? What do they do with it? You know, have they been shown in the past to do commercial deals with companies that would get to access to the research that data? If so, do I feel comfortable about that? You know, do they aggregate that data and anonymize it if they're going to sell that? And we just, um, for example, we, we have a party. We will not sell this data. There's no third party involvement in this. Um, it'll be stored using sort of gold standard, you know, data protection protocols. We actually have this um, ISO 27001, which is the international standard for the highest level of information security and management systems oh, wow. and so on. So, and this stuff doesn't come easy. But the, the, the good news is that, you know, as a, as a company in this space, when we started, you already have data protection at your core because you understand how sensitive this data yeah. is. Whereas when you're someone like a social network, Facebook, of course, you don't start with data protection in your mind, right? Totally, <laughs> you know? because you yeah. just, your intention is to connect people. Yeah. Whereas you guys are... By default, it's a sharing economy at the start, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you come from the medical end of the spectrum, the yeah, the health data, there's already a different mindset from the moment you even start that company, you know? It's so the first question that's on it. your mind. Yeah, so, so there's already more security by default in this industry. But at the same time, there are policies and there's big companies out there that, that are very clear. So we do aggregate and anonymize your data and we do sell that for pharmaceutical research for the good of medicine, which I'm fine with personally, but others aren't, you know. And that, yeah. so it's just assessing what you can see. How transparent is that company about data usage? How do I feel about that? DNA testing actually kind of brought up quite a an argument in the family, actually, because we had a big debate on do you actually want to know your DNA? Um, because... You know, if you can't change it, then why would you want to know if maybe you had faulty G- DNA? What are your thoughts on that? So first, there's probably no faulty DNA. That's probably a, yeah. <laughs> you know, a, bit, a bit of a phrase. So I think we've been, historically, we, you know, we've been, as a society, we've had this question, you know, how do I want to know this? And that's a, it's a personal choice, right? Yeah. Personally, the good example is Alzheimer's risk. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, one of the variants that that's uh, genes that that has a um, an effect there is called APOE4, so APOE4. And um, if you have a certain um, genetic variant here, or two two copies of a particular variant, it can raise your predisposition to Alzheimer's. Doesn't mean you will get Alzheimer's, but it can raise your predisposition. And there's really no proven treatment for Alzheimer's. So it's a question about you know do you do you want to know if you're at that raised risk? It's not going to tell you you will have Alzheimer's. But you have to be ready to make that decision. So there's different levels of this product people can buy that includes the serious stuff or just includes the sort of, you know, Fun, lifestyle change like stuff lifestyle or thing. just the nutrition stuff, just the new, new the fitness stuff. Um, but then actually what we found is nearly everybody wants the big test. Really? And everyone wants the serious stuff. And, and you know, the, the key part is part of what our desire with making this was that every single person had access to what's called a genetic counselor and that's a qualified official role which means that you're qualified to counsel people on what their genetic variants mean how they affect them how they might not affect them so you can properly set the context of what any perceived negative result could be and um and that's super important so every single user gets to speak to a genetic counselor and then also to a dietitian a sports scientist around the lifestyle stuff as well so so suppose with alzheimer's you actually can be making choices now to prevent the onset of Alzheimer's. Yeah, and still there's no real proven lifestyle change that would necessarily oh, I mean and we know there's there's definitely you know there's there's factors that appear to but there's no like you know you wouldn't necessarily go to a doctor and the doctor say well if you do this that'll stop you getting Alzheimer's. There's nothing you can you can really guaranteed do. But interestingly even in factors where there's no guaranteed change we alluded to it earlier 
people still lived healthier lifestyles once they learned this risk. So actually, you know, personally, I would be very happy to know if I had that raised risk to say, well, at least I have this on my mind that it might be a higher predisposition on my side. So let me do all the best things I can for my cognitive ability to keep myself, you know, healthy to do all this. And actually, if it got to later in life, I could prepare better as well, just in case, you know. And but this this is a personal question. Everyone's different. Some people really just would rather not know, and that's fine, you know. But that's why you have different tiers of products available, I guess. So obviously, being the founder of a mindfulness (laughs) app, um, I thought the data on whether you have got a predisposition to stress was interesting. And again, because a question I've asked myself is, okay, five years ago when I was talking about mental health, I had to do a lot of education around this is what meditation does to the brain or this is what these exercises every morning, mindfulness activities can do to improve your well-being. And now I feel there's more people that know this stuff. And to your point a little earlier ago, my challenge currently is, well, how do we now get more of us to actually participate in mindfulness activities Mm. every day? Mm. And so finding out whether you are more vulnerable to experience stress is actually quite a good motivator to prioritize mindfulness rather than at the moment I find mindfulness really is the lowest on our priority list. It's like you get a call from a friend and suddenly your meditation practice goes out the window. So I'm kind of very passionate about this and hopefully encouraging people to really understand how useful and beneficial mindfulness is as a daily activity that's it so i mean you know no matter what the activity is whether it's eating whether it's exercise whether it's you know literally managing a certain medical risk whether it's mental health there are factors in our genetics in our dna that might increase decrease our predisposition to certain conditions or the way we interact with environmental changes so some parts of our dna will change the way we have this dopamine receptor the way we create these hormones around stress response Um, and knowing that if you say well you know what i found out i'm at this potentially this sort of higher alert almost when it comes to interacting with stressful stimuli um, how might i better manage that proactively place that as a higher priority on my list and that's where you can then start to say well i'm going to engage in this healthy you know practice of mindfulness preventatively as opposed to just being like on the back foot all the time and like we said we all know we should do mindfulness all day every day right and we should eat all the healthy foods and do all the exercise and 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 so on but we can't engage we have to pick our battles right? we yeah. have to prioritize something yeah otherwise we just get overwhelmed <laughs> by trying to do the right thing that's it yeah so i was kind of interested in um in how emotional trauma affects dna because I've heard people speak about if, for example, your grandfather or grandmother went through a very traumatic experience, um, actually that can that trauma can kind of be seen in grandchildren or future generations. Is To you, is that woo-woo? Is that going a bit far out there? Or what are your thoughts on does emotional experiences affect your DNA? So there are, um, there's a field called epigenetics. Yes. And this is how our environment might influence the activity 
of our genes, of our DNA. It won't necessarily change the version of a gene you have or the DNA you have, but it might influence the activity of that particular gene, so how, how it expresses its protein, how it acts. Um, one of the really interesting, and I don't know necessarily how to speak to, you know, the relevance of sort of trauma as a, as a concept as a whole. One of the most interesting things that's been studied is something called the um, the Dutch famine, right? So in the, in the Second World War, um, there was a, a group of a, a Jewish um, area in the Netherlands and they were, you know, imposed by the Nazi rule and, um, and having literally, you know, very little food, very unhealthy, very, you know, starvation effectively. And the effects of that have been observed in generations to come in the Dutch population still. So that might be increased risk of pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetes, wow. of obesity, um, as a result of this trauma, which was, you know, a famine, basically, generations prior. And so the interesting thing is, you know, when you, you know, if you, if you want to do a DNA test and there's almost like a, there's a, there's a particularly sort of almost like a selfish part to that. I want to be healthy. I want to feel great. But actually that, you know, if you're, if you're doing the best for your health in general, that probably can only have a good effect even downstream generations future later. future generations yeah. later. Yeah. God, I love that. Look after yourself for your great, yeah. great, great and grandchildren. This is, you know, that, that's like a, yeah, we, I'm, I'm inferring a potential benefit there that, you know, no one's necessarily really studied, but there's been, you know, really interesting studies retrospectively at things like the Dutch hunger, like winter, that, that led to these effects downstream. So yeah. surely doing it the other way can only lead to something positive. I would love to speak a little bit more about epigenetics because, again, I think it's such a positive field of research. So can you kind of break it down a bit further? What what kind of is the concept of epigenetics? So the concept really is just about, look, how does what we do impact any genetic activity, should mm-hmm. we say? So um, it actually works really well if you talk about even my case of that sprint training and that gene, right? Mm-hmm. So if I had the C version of the ACTN3 gene, the sprinter's version of that gene, and I gave my body a sprint activity, so a really short, powerful exercise, that gene would express its protein, be very active, and do that job really well. If I didn't do the sprint activity, it wouldn't it wouldn't go away. I would still have that gene, but it might not be as particularly active as it would be if I did a certain activity or certain exercise. And so that's really an epigenetic interaction. That's a, an environment change, something I do that's non-genetic, which might change the expression of a genetic variant that I possess or don't possess. I really love that because really it speaks to if we create a positive environment around us, our genetics can behave differently. Yeah, so I mean, well, I would probably put it just sl- slightly slightly broader in that, you know, we can nurture that nature better. Mm. So it's not that it's something is either nature or nurture. It's not entirely how you're born and DNA. It's not entirely what you do. But it's better as how can you change what you do to make the most, to nurture that na- nature, nature part of you, that static part of you better. Amazing. Well, I think that's a really, really positive note to finish on. And thank you so much uh, for joining me. Um, I always like to finish with a finish your sentence round. (laughs) So if you could finish these lines. The best piece of advice I've been given was? Piece of advice more than my my original coach gave me Mm -hmm. in sport was um, I can't change what the other people do in their lane you stay in your lane you do the best you can do first thing in the morning <clears throat> i drink lots of coffee because i'm a fast metabolizer of caffeine thanks to my cyp 182 <laughs> gene <laughs> before i go to sleep i 
um, almost drink coffee as well. <laughs> but, uh, so I drink a lot of coffee. Uh, but no, I always read like um, fiction. There's really interesting studies looking at quality of sleep when you've had read non-fiction versus fiction before bed. Wow. And it's almost a form of meditation, right? Because you're yeah. taking yourself to elsewhere. You're not engaging in that's something that's relevant yeah. to your like you can actually control it's a different part of the brain which is used and it, it seems to increase uh, what's called parasympathetic nervous system activity yeah. which is the relaxing part of i love this yeah the person i love most in the world is uh my wife and my daughter who's only five months old so we've got two two people to add to that list nowadays <laughs> yeah. if i could do it all again i would i didn't go to university as a result of my sport so you know people said hey, you can go to university anytime you can you know you've got to take advantage of your talent and actually i could have done both so i think i could have been broader i could have been yet wider in that sort of spectrum of things that i that, that i know or have studied you know i would love to meet i'd love to meet david attenborough if you really knew me you would know although i might seem like a you know, i've had a, I've been a sports person I'm actually like really not that into sport. <laughs> it was my job. I don't know anything about football. I don't know anything about other sports. You know, I just like I barely know about athletics. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the <laughs> that's the unexpected part of that. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Andrew. Where can we find you? And where can if anybody wants to learn more about DNA, ask you questions, or find out more about circle DNA? Where can they go? Sure. So, um, if you want to find me, uh, you find me on all the major social media platforms just as Andrew Steele or one word uh, and then for uh, Circle DNA you go to circledna.com uh, or through um, our other site which is dnafit.com you can just go to the website and order your test that's there. right yes yeah, so just buy online test comes to you at home do the test and you at home. ship everywhere yeah ship everywhere yeah okay so, amazing yeah. Mm. well thank you so much I have to say look I've become fascinated by uh, DNA I found Circle DNA and uh yeah, so thank you for uh, replying to all my stalking messages. I'm so glad we had this interview. <laughs> Thanks a lot. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Of course, it would be amazing and very appreciated if you wouldn't mind hitting subscribe and sharing this podcast. You can find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram. DM me questions or any guest suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you have a moment, download Happy Not Perfect. It's my mindfulness app that helps you manage stress, anxiety, sleep, and ultimately makes you feel happier every single day in less than five minutes. See you next time. Sending you lots of love and energy. Till then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.